à la Cité internationale des arts. Je m'appelle Natacha Petrichin-Bachelet et je suis responsable de la programmation culturelle dans ce lieu. Pour celles et ceux qui viennent pour la première fois, c'est le lieu de résidence, la plus grande en fait, institution de résidence pour les artistes venant de tous les pays et de toutes les disciplines, puisque c'est au monde. Donc c'est un lieu qui accueille jusqu'à 280 artistes par mois et qui se situe ici au Marais où vous êtes ce soir et à Montmartre. Et euh, une partie, une grande partie de ce que nous faisons, c'est aussi de mettre en valeur, d'accompagner de, de, de les artistes qui sont ici. Et ça, on fait avec euh, plus de 150 partenaires euh, qui sont aussi euh, de, de la sphère privée, de la sphère publique. Euh, ça peut varier entre les, les organisations à but lucratif, les académies des beaux-arts. Et euh, c'est une invitation euh, qui a été faite aux curatrices Yelena Petrovic et Daniela Dogandic euh, pour curater l'exposition Europa Enterprise qui est en ce moment en vue à la, dans la galerie, euh, ici à la Cité des Arts. Euh, a été faite suite à une collaboration très fructueuse avec euh, Relais Culture Europe, que je salue aussi ici ce soir parmi nous, et euh, l'exposition qui est en cours jusqu'à 10 décembre parle de, euh, de la situation euh, de, en fait, du passé et du futur de ce continent qui porte euh, le nom d'une fille euh, violée et qu'est-ce que cette violence en fait, euh, comment elle existe, comment elle est, comment elle est euh, où sont les racines euh, de cette violence et qu'est-ce qu'elle peut être une lecture euh, future ou futuriste féministe. Euh, donc si vous n'avez pas encore vu cette exposition, je vous invite. Elle est ouverte entre mardi et samedi de 14h à 19h. Et euh, dans ce cadre-là, nous allons assister ce soir à une conversation avec le Colombert, euh, que je salue aussi ici, euh, qui est architecte, auteur, militant euh, et aussi euh, éditeur d'un magazine euh, très important qui s'appelle The Finambulist, mais qui va euh, ce soir, ensemble avec les curatrices, euh, parler aussi de son livre récent, qui s'appelle L'état d'urgence, euh, une histoire spatiale du continuum colonial. Français. Français. Mmh. Et euh, la conversation va se passer en anglais, euh, mais je vous invite ensuite de poser les questions après, euh, de se joindre à la discussion, soit en français, Soit en anglais, je suis là aussi pour traduire. So we can ask questions in English or French and I can Thank you very much. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming for uh, joining this conversation with our guest, with guest of Europa Enterprise, Labov Lambert. Natasha introduced him in French. I will repeat in English. Uh, Lapold is editor-in-chief of the Fondambulist magazine and uh, history and architect, uh, author of four books uh, which examine uh, the violence, uh, the questions of violence in architecture, but uh, political instrumentalization at various scales and various geographical context. From the perspective of the current exhibition Europa Enterprise, the discussion will focus on his work, which is very much connected to the topics which the exhibition actually has through its works. And uh, through this conversation between architecture and violence, and art and violence, we wanted to connect those uh, different kinds of views on, on this topic. So I would like also to introduce Daniela Dugancic, curator, activist, feminist from Sarajevo, who is not only one of curators of this exhibition, but also uh, someone who established this organization uh, for art, culture, Crvena, which means red. And uh, through this space in, in Sarajevo, uh, a lot of different kind of uh, initiatives, which deals not only with art, but also with public space, architecture, and uh, different kind of topics uh, actually are pretty much present. So from this kind of experience, she also somehow curated this uh, show. And uh, I would like also to introduce myself. I joined to this project uh, as a guest curator. I'm coming from Belgrade. 
I work in Vienna at the Academy of Fine Arts, and my field of the research is uh, art geographies and the topics of art of, and violence. Basically, violence is everywhere. It's really like an uh, important topic, uh, so it's, it's not always uh, easy to speak about this. It's complicated, especially because the theory has different kind of narratives uh, which we cannot always use in the practice. So there is also the huge difference between theory and practice when you speak about violence, about colonialism, about fascism, about patriarchy and so on. I would like to start from the question concerning individual work and collective practices as far as we are all somehow engaged with the public and political space through this, what we are doing. We all collaborate with different people and create some collaborative projects. Uh, you, you create your magazine and uh, you know just probably work on different kind of issues uh, with many people and uh, discussing, exchanging and create some kind of community through this. And Serban also has different kinds of projects and works dealing with this issue of collectiveness. I would like maybe first to ask you how do you see this shift in between individual work and collective practice? And what does it mean to be politically active within this kind of shifts in between those two? Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to all of you for being here uh, on a Friday night. A big thank you to Natasha to welcome us to the City des Arts and to Elena and Daniela for this, uh, for this invitation. It's not such an easy question because I feel I don't take enough time to reflect on the methodology and the practice itself rather than the sort of content we're generating, uh, which is always easier to talk about, paradoxically or not. But it's true that there is a strong difference between the work that I do as an editor and the work I do as a writer, and the work I do as an editor, it's a bigger part of my life, and I think I like it like that as well, because that's not necessarily just for some sort of romantic idea of what the collective is in politics and everything, because I'm, for example, even though Natasha was kindly introduced me as an activist, I don't know whether I deserve to be called an activist, so I never sort of claim it for myself. But that's for sure that I'm not part of any activist organization, or at least not on a permanent basis. I don't have necessarily this sort of drive towards the collective as a sort of abstract idea, and sometimes I find the collective to be quite emotionally demanding and time-consuming and all this. But I think the collective work I'm enjoying through the magazine is I'm enjoying it because everybody knows what their role is about, and uh, mine is to define an editorial line on a given topic with a certain argument and then to try to build, but just like you as curators, like to try to build spine on which contributions can plug into. This spine would be absolutely worthless without the actual contribution and there's one who brings all the intelligence to the topic itself. So I think this is a kind of collective work I'm enjoying and then when it comes to trying to articulate something that requires a perhaps that mobilize some sort of urge on my end, like then that's when I tend to write more and I used to write much more and I do much less now because I'm sort of much more aware of the importance of words and how and I don't know, I mean I reread some stuff I wrote like ten years ago, even my first book, I'm just I'm quite embarrassed but I think that's that's kind of a common thing. But still like it's interesting how I used to be able to write something, barely reread it and, and shamelessly uh, put it out there and now I'm, I'm bit more paradoxically my imposter syndrome is increasing from year to years it's at the same times when I do it I feel it's important to do it and on the other hand I feel it also mobilizes when it's such an individualistic practice it also immediately goes to the ego and once you publish something you start like feeling jealous of other people or something like I don't know there's it calls on very very bad primal instincts that in my work as an editor I never really go through that so there's something a little bit more joyful about it and at the end of the day I'm sure the work I do as an editor is more important than the work I do as a writer but what has more impact your individual work and your, this kind of collective... In my own practice, the magazine has much more impact than my own writing, for sure. I mean, I can have a, a little uh, 
self-indulging claim within the field of architecture, which is that I, I was part of a few people within a given generation that managed, I don't know, but prepared somehow the foundations for something that now uh, a new generation is fully building on. And it was not so easy to do it like uh, 15 years ago, like to really fight, I mean, to really bang heads into walls doing it. But I think the sort of feedback I'm getting from the magazine is much more both rewarding and feels much more important than, than yeah. individual work, I suppose. Both provide so many interesting stories for discussion and somehow influence the public space. So I would like also to ask Danielle about, you know, just... Uh, we're not only about exhibition, but also of practice of Cervena and of this uh, context uh, through this collectiveness, but also through her individual work. Hello, everybody. I'm actually very delighted that I'm here tonight, especially because Leopold is here. He could find time, luckily, to join us. And I must say, in regards to what he was just saying with a magazine or a platform, Thank you, because this is such an amazing resource and knowledge that really helped many of us to understand things that we cannot understand from different sources because they are not so, I would say, politically close to us. And they definitely help political struggles all around the world. So in this respect, this is for us very important that this platform exists and that we can actually take this knowledge from it, which I think is also one of your motives of, of a platform that is sharing of knowledge that is also important for the work of Tsevena. Tsevena is an association for culture and art, but it's a feminist left collective from Sarajevo. We were founded on 8th of March in 2010. Uh, our founders are women artists, activists, academics, architects, engineers, lawyers, economists. There's really a bunch of different people in the group. Now we have over 50 members who all have different ideas of how we should work and in which areas. As feminists, we believe that we really have to deal with all of the topics that create our not only present but also the future. So, but you know, some people would say that we are schizophrenic uh, because we do so much in, a, in so many different areas, but uh, this is the urge that comes from each individual that is a member of collective, so we really want to embrace uh, all of their interests and ideas. In respect to what we do and, and how we do it, we when we started, we decided we don't want to do projects, we want to do programs and uh, this programmatic orientation from the beginning was very important to us because we knew that nothing can be done in a year. So we started with, um, with the art and feminism as our starting ground, uh, that, so that's one of the programmatic orientations. But then working a lot with architects and urbanists in Sarajevo, this moved on to city and nature and area where we are very active, also in Sarajevo specifically a lot, and this is like a public commons and what happens to public commons today in Sarajevo, that maybe we can talk about, uh, what is the difference between here and in Sarajevo, and also women in society, where we deal a lot about women history, this emancipatory history, especially the anti-fascist front of women, which was the biggest anti-fascist movement of more than 2 million women in this organization who participated in the Second World War as uh, fighters, but also later in building of the socialist Yugoslavia. So that's quite uh, a long and interesting research that we are doing for the past 11 years already. Fourth one, labor and leisure, where we also have educational program and uh, invite different artists uh, to talk on the topic, but also research what happened with the labor movement today, and not only the movement, but also what happened with the uh, with the inherited of the movement and the syndicates, such as uh, holiday houses that Bosnia, for example, had on the Croatian coast and the Montenegrin coast, and how this destruction of Yugoslavia affected the working class today, and also the right to free time and leisure. That's also very important for all of us, because this is something that we have less and less of in this neoliberal society. And in respect to the question of individual and collective practice, 
To me, since I'm one of the founders of Cervena, so I'm there since 2010, and even before that I was active in uh, different feminist organizations. To me, collective is very important, and I feel at home with, uh, with other people, and I take on a lot from the energy of these people in the group. But not only that, to me, what is uh, extremely important is the critic that exists on a daily basis. So every day, you know, whatever we do, we criticize each other's work, and that's what makes it better, I, I truly believe. So in this respect, it's tough, it's always challenging, as you said, emotionally as well. But um, what I get from it is so much, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. As for my individual practice, of course, sometimes it's very important to go in this isolation from everybody and then do your own thing and uh, deal with topics that you cannot deal with in the collective. But yeah, I guess that's an answer to the question. I like being part of the collective. Uh, I would like to say that we also somehow frame this uh, conversation, you know, in between different contexts. Uh, uh, Europa Enterprise, you know, just don't deal only with Europe and European space, but also wider with all different kind of types of violence uh, all over the world, which are connected with uh, colonialism and uh, uh, all other uh, formats of uh, exploitations and, uh, and uh, oppression. And uh, speaking from the perspective of uh, post-Yugoslavian space, let's say, I would like also to, to say that always when we speak about this, we, we return to the war, we always speak about the war. And there is one award which was uh, uh, actually emerged from Sarajevo, this is war architecture, it is, is combined, it is some kind of plural term is between war and architecture, we speak about the violence in architecture. I am going now to the second topic which is actually deals with uh, uh, how architecture can define the lives uh, and uh, all kind of uh, ideological, political and uh, other struggles. So um, the ideology behind architecture is very, very important. This term, uh, what architecture, is uh, coined by Andrew Hersher. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Uh, he said uh, that architecture both in and out of war invoke our architectural theory, a theory that war is architecture by other means, which means that we always speak about architecture as something which is in the construction, uh, about the concepts which are modernist, which are uh, civilized, and uh, which uh, actually create our world uh, to be a better place. But uh, when we have such kind of situation, like it's war or it's uh, today this uh, different kind of crisis, exploitation, architecture is very often is also a target. So the, the point of, of writing of Andrew Herscher is that is every architecture and in every monument violence is already inscribed. Uh, I know that you <laughs> wrote a lot about this and it is your book, uh, Weaponized Architecture. It's uh, Impossibility of Innocence is also about the relation between bodies, spaces and architecture. What do you think about this and uh, how you can explain that relationship? I know Andrew's work actually, but I didn't know about this concept of architecture. I guess it's... Um... From 2008, we, yeah. We can probably put it in a relationship to the concept of herbicide that uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich coined after the, the bombing of the Sarajevo library. But what I try to do talking about architecture and violence is maybe even going one step backwards and go back to like, the most elemental component of architecture that surrounds us. I, mean, I haven't, I've never talked about that without being surrounded by architecture in general. I really ought to do it in the middle of a field one day. And, and just looking, the important thing perhaps first is to define the notion of violence as well, because I think that there's a big misunderstanding on the concept of violence that many people in, let's say, in a Western context, to, to keep it simple, are interpreting that necessarily a, a negative thing. And I guess it is a negative thing, but like a bad thing, like something that we should really run away from. And I think my approach to violence is a little bit less moralistic to begin with, and it's much more trying to see how most of architectures that surround us is, are made in such a way that our body, 
as themselves with their share energy are not able to really affect. I mean, you know, if I to push this wall or, or that one, like probably I, I won't I won't really manage. I mean I can maybe find some tools to do it, but somehow the walls are made in such a or, or the, the floors and ceilings are made in such a way that bodies cannot really affect them in a significant way or at least in a very punctual way. And any encounter that would want to like a real encounter is actually triggering violence. Like if, if I try to run into this wall, I'm going to hurt myself and I might even hurt the wall a little bit, which is an interesting element of reciprocity, I suppose. <laughs> it's an important one because I've been saying uh, a lot how uh, with a little spoon you can you can really destroy a wall if you take enough time and it was wonderful to see the six Palestinian prisoners uh, last month uh, doing exactly that. A little spoon. And so this violence is first and foremost a, a physical one, one we, if we go with like concept and history of philosophy, which I know very little about, but uh, just enough to, to know that I, I can attribute it to like a sort of Spinozist uh, vision, uh, understanding of violence. And then once we sort of see that, we see how bodies are organized in space through this architecture and how we all entered from the same, the same space and, uh, and everything has been thought in such a way that we would enter from that space, we would sit there, we would have like the people you're supposed to listen to who would sit here. And perhaps it's okay, that's my point. I haven't been to the political just yet. Like it's Perhaps it's fine that we have to enter through here. Perhaps it's fine that we cannot access the subway from here, I guess it's not too far. But then of course, once you're able to perceive all architectures through this sort of scheme of body organization, then of course we have to read it politically and we have to see how most of the walls that surround us are crystallizing very often private property, which is a political regime of its own. If we were in a settler colony, uh, like I lived in the US for a while, so like in the US that would implement even the settler, settler colonialism as well and enforce it. And so there's various political regimes, many that sort of overlaps on each other and a lot has to do also with patriarchy as well, uh, heteronormativity. And of course, colonialism has loves architecture. Like architecture is so useful to colonialism. So I guess it's it's really trying to to lead to read this in an almost childish way to begin with, and then observe how this serves and enforced and even is much necessary tool for those political regime to enforce themselves. I don't know if I misunderstood, but uh, when I read one of your interviews, uh, you said that, that there is no something like emancipatory architecture and architecture which is, uh, in this sense, something which is per se emancipatory mm. or progressive. So, especially yeah. connect, in connection to modernism and you know just this kind of progressive ideas. What, what do you mean by this? When I say there is no emancipatory architecture, it's really within this sort of approach to architecture that I just uh, defined. So it's uh, like any mathematical demonstration. Like if you start from another axiom, maybe you can you can say something different. But with those axioms, if I put it in one very simple, if not simplistic sentence, I would say like there are no spaces that you enter and you become free, whereas there are spaces where you enter and you become unfree. And we call those prisons and camps and uh, detention cells and, and all those things. So I think, you know, as I said a little bit earlier, like 15 years ago it was not that easy, and 50 years ago it was easy, 15 years ago it was not easy within the architectural field to like say all architecture is political and violent and all that. Now everybody gets it. But what I, some sort of trope is that architecture is always political, but somehow it could be used for like the good stuff and the bad stuff. like. And, and my point is like, no, architecture is always violent. That doesn't mean architecture is always doing the bad stuff. But And also architecture is not everything, which is important. But the fact of the matter is that it's so easy to trace a, a settler colonial line between, say, uh, the US and Mexico, for example, or closer to you, from uh, Hungary and Serbia, or Croatia and Slovenia. It's the other way around, sorry, Slovenia and Croatia and to extrude it and create a wall that uh, unfolds its violence. Uh, whereas if we need to think of like architecture uh, that serves somehow a revolutionary uh, leftist, anti-colonial, feminist manifesto, then we, we need to really put our heads into it much more than just building a wall. So I think I, I see in this uh, 
dichotomy a pretty good example of why architecture is almost always serving the dominant order. That's the meaning of war. We have a lot in our exhibition actually works with deals with architecture, gentrification, with violence. So maybe, Danielle, you would say something about those relations. And, yes. Yeah. In the exhibition, we deal with this topic, and uh, a lot of researchers that are part of the Transmaking project, which is framed for the exhibition, started researching about the public space and commons. We have been dealing with this notion for a long time, and then at one point when I was faced with different realities and the ideas about public space, I understood that we don't talk about the same thing. And I, and I don't know if you remember the Berlin uh, conference. This is where I was very stunned uh, with the idea of what public space is for some people. Like, for example, one Chinese architect showed a, a building of a shopping mall that had a open, like zero four, opened up with some uh, benches, etc. She said this was the public space. I remember to me it was really strange to understand this as a public space because we grew up with a completely different idea of what public space and public good is. But unfortunately, what we face today is violence that you also talk about, and it's very structural. It's many times you would hear an architect who built a huge shopping center in a place where this shopping center should not be built, definitely where it was before a, a commonly owned public space owned by the people and by the city. Today we live in a society where all of these spaces are being sold for ridiculous amounts of money to various international community representatives from the different embassies, such as, for example, American embassy who bought like half of the neighborhood for their embassy. And the problem is not in public domain anymore, but it's now American territory where in front of this building you have ten soldiers with guns and every time you pass by they stick the gun uh, in your face and it's uh, and it's really violent and evident, you know, so these kind of examples are evident. But also, as Nasiha, who is here, she, she's a professor at the Faculty of Architecture, but also very active in, in all of these discussions that we have in Sarajevo, we were faced with the very violent examples of practices in, in decision-making in regarding the urban planning. So far, the architects were always of an idea that they are experts for the space and that some of these decisions should be done without the public and because we don't know what we need and we need them as experts to tell us what to do. Most of the time, the only person who tells us what will be there is the investor who is uh, only there for their own interest, as we know, and this is not only the case in Sarajevo, but also everywhere else. But in Sarajevo, what happens is that our politicians are also now selling our commons and now also our rivers, whoever uh, can give the money. Practically, this struggle for the public space and for our commons goes in such a extreme situations. For example, I can say one where we had public discussion, and Siha was there as well, for one of the neighborhoods in, in Sarajevo, where one of the protagonists of this idea to, to build a central bank on the only park in this neighborhood that we have, when one of the women started saying something against this, he threatened her with rape. So the violence is not only evident through the buildings and the way we organize our space, but it's also evident every time we try to be politically active and deciding about what this space should look like. So it's a war in itself, of course, war with other means. We, you spoke about the war, of course, it created a lot of influence on what Sarajevo is today. But now it's fought with different means, and it's what is creating is a city that will be divided by different international actors who have money, and then they will organize the space as, for example, Saudi Arabian uh, shopping mall where you cannot drink or eat pork or hold hands with your partner. They're not only designing the space, but they also influence the behavior and uh, to me, that's very violent and very problematic on many levels. Yeah. 
There's also, um, for me, the difference right now between private, privately owned public space or, or what we call public space in general tends to, not for everyone, of course, far from it, but like for many people, it tends to be like, who do you want to be policed by, essentially? Do you want to be policed by the cops or do you want to be policed by some sort of private security? Uh, and of course, there's no, there's no good scenario in, in this. So I also want to stress how public space, I'm thinking of a city like Paris, of course, uh, here, how public space is also enacting, I mean, the concept of public space is completely enacting as well as war and uh, structural racism in the way that some people would be systematically harassed by cops by being in the space. I see it in architecture a lot, how there's architecture being like one of the most middle-class uh, discipline you can ever think of when you look at who is doing it and how there is always like a completely unquestioned understanding of what public space is and on the contrary of what I was saying earlier is always assumed to be a good thing like public space is good, violence is bad so I think it's interesting to re-question a little bit all that and to try to, to see it from also perspectives that are usually not the perspective of architects themselves Through this exhibition we try also to deal with different kind of uh forms of invisible violence. It's not only about architecture, about invisible borders. There is work of Ramit Manchin and she's here, changes are going to come with those political landscapes or you know, just a touristic place like Isisola del Femine or uh, River Neretva or a partisan uh, monument in, in Mostar and so on. What was important also for us through Europe Enterprise is also to show how exactly that violence is not obvious always and sometimes it's part of the culture and sometimes this culture transforms architecture and building into the target so it's, <laughs> this, it depends with which kind of heritage is connected to it with this uh, partisan grave it is this partisan kind of ideology and heritage which was connected to it is the reason why it's abundant and the reason why some uh, monuments from the second Second World War, and then after this are destroyed. So it's really like it's also, I will return to this war architecture and all this kind of uh, now attempts to recover it and to, to again put it into function, but it doesn't function anymore. It's a, again a new monument of a new violence which will come one day again and uh, hit back. But uh, one interesting thing for me was uh, also from your interview, and this is a political force of refusal, which was connected with this abolitionist kind of approach to specific architecture like prisons or police station and all these kind of buildings which are connected to kind of surveillance and different kind of oppression over a human body. So you said that bringing people into an aggregate of refusals is already acting politically. How we can go beyond this, uh, just uh, critique, explaining, and one of your proposals, you can always refuse not to do this, not to project this, not to... Do you think that it could be some kind of uh, large movement, or it's just something which is connected to individual uh, to decide, or how we can translate it into some kind of movement, you know, right to refusal? <laughs> I mean, in my case, I really think of it within the practice of architecture, so it's a bit of, a, once again, like a very particular demographic, so I don't really think of it as a possibly a massive movement, although with this demographic shifting, I think there's a, there's maybe chance that it might. And again, like I'm much more satisfied with what I, with the sort of level of debates I see today in architecture than like 15 years ago, so... But yeah, the idea, I mean, you know, it's when fascism knock at the door, I think it's, there is less, as the subtitle of the, my first book that you cited, uh, says there is impossibility for innocence. So you can either have absolutely no problem with building prisons, police stations, and being, being like, and, and enforcing all the kind of little fascist programs. But if you do have problem with it, like so many, again, like architects being very middle-class profession, but also very center-left, if we may call it like that. I think they're one of the most sort of identifiable group of practitioners that are swimming in contradiction on a daily basis because they, on the one hand, they want to be like the nice guys, but on the other hand, they just practice all those political programs. And granted, like not everyone is building 
prisons or police stations, but I think when it comes to like uh, building uh, gentrifying uh, programs and everything, then I think like all of a sudden we touch like, I don't know, like 80% of architects or something like that. So it's not about refusing everything. I think everybody has their own sort of red line based on their own politics, and I don't want to be moralistic about it. But yeah, just living up to like just the refusal of, of allowing contradiction, like of uh, negotiation perhaps in some cases, but it, I just cannot take another argument of like designing a prison is maybe making sure that it's going to be a little bit better than if someone else was designing it. I mean, this sort of like self-indulgent argument that we've heard so many times and that no one truly believes in. So everybody who ever designed a prison designed it for it to be a little bit better than what the other guy would do, so... Yeah, or camps, or <laughs> walls, or you know, just to be more humor, more protective, so in that sense. This is also the question about radicality, how radical we can be. Sometimes we need to find friends among enemies, allies, you know, just to transform. This is one side. On the other side, sometimes we produce something under leftist, uh, good conditions, you know, just exploiting ourselves at the same time or, you know, trying to create the feminist context in a very paternalistic kind of environment or uh, just to... Well, it's very complicated and depend on the situation. But the question is uh, about refusal. I participated 10 years ago on an exhibition, Right to Refusal. It was a very interesting concept as political tool, how to step out of this position and of this neoliberality and to do something. So there is uh, no way out. This is for the last 10 years. Also, we can speak about violence, architecture, about everything, but still we don't see some kind of possibility to, to step out. And since then, I think that only these politics of refusal or politics of error is something that can move things beyond what we are living. So this is also something which we tackled through our exhibition. So maybe you, you can, Daniela, also add something to this, how radical we can be maybe as feminists and dealing with such questions? I think the older I get, the more radical I uh, become or seem to become to other people. <laughs> because when you know, when you have an information, then you have a responsibility to, to not accept and not to allow certain things. So right to refusal, of course, is very important in a feminist collective and we discuss this many times with like different situations that we are put in because we have to fund our, ourselves from some of the sources and this was like one of the, uh, the biggest discussions always the collective, do we take the money from the enemy or we refuse in this sense or do we put ourselves in this in the exploitation that we are aware of because we wanted to do something or not. So this is always individual but also collective tough question that you have to ask yourself. And many times, I mean, what always uh, bothers me is the fact that because I see so many uh, problems around me and situations where I see a lot of exploitation and fascism and racism and all of the things that we are dealing with with the exhibition and also destruction of our bodies and minds and lands and uh, futures. I always think like, I always have to be in alert. I always have to be aware that something will happen and occur and I have to react. But at one point you get tired and you think like, okay, so they're just waiting for this moment where I get tired and I say I don't care and that's where I lose this struggle that is along and it's not only mine because you know feminist struggle is but it's something that comes from the ancient myths till now I feel a huge responsibility to react and, and refuse situations like this but it's a very tough process because you see problems everywhere and then when you react all the time people think you're a, a lunatic and a crazy person and a radical or militant or whatever they like to call me sometimes. So I don't know, like I'm always afraid that I will lose the struggle because I will be so tired not to be able to react or refuse a certain thing because I will be in a politics of care moment or love 
to do something that I usually don't accept. So this is always, I think this is the biggest internal struggle that, that I have as a, as a political person being. So, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's very tough. I think it's, uh, it's one of the toughest things. Like, you can say, like, I will refuse that, but you don't know, like, uh, what kind of situations will you be put in and what will you have to accept at the end. And will this be the end of your political position? Yeah, I would like to, to go back from this position of and politics of refusal, which is I, I somehow see it as collective act, not as individual or personal, more in the sense how to organize along this. And I would like to go six years back, because now it's the 60th anniversary of non-alignment movement, uh, which was established in, in Belgrade. And it was actually uh, somehow uh, framed through this politics of, of refusal, colonialism. And uh, it was when we uh, spoke about this uh, conversation, I told you, okay, I would like to speak about anti-colonial struggle, not about post-colonialism or decolonialism, because I think we are still, uh, we cannot speak about post-colonialism because we are living this in, in continuum. But what was interesting for me also somehow connected uh, the topic of your last book, uh, yes, and uh, status of uh, emergencies. I will uh, read the whole uh, title. States of emergency, special history of the French colonial continuum, is actually something which uh, brings into the light three examples uh, of, of this uh, different kind of let's say, facing with coloniality and through different spaces. And one is coming from that period of non-alignment movement. This is Algerian Revolution, which was also in this uh, fight for independence, which also was connected with the uh, Yugoslav state at that time and supported uh, also uh, a kind of uh, uh, military support, political support, and so on. And Algeria was one of the founder, co-founder of non-alignment movement. And through the 60s, all those countries uh, who became uh, somehow free from colonialism, and this is very, very uh, was described precisely through this, what we all knew in our schools, because we are were educated about this, what uh, non-alignment movement means, uh, what anti-colonial struggles means, and so on. So politically aware about this different kind of freedoms, and the, the freedom which are reached through, through uh, we can also say through violence, so this is also about this negative or subjective or objective violence. It's also different kind of approaches and through, through philosophy and through history. Could you please tell us something more about... I'm particularly interested in this uh, concept of uh, colonial continuum because you start from Algeria for different states of emergency which firstly are displaced from Europe and then are in the center here. You, you're finishing with the protest uh, in 2005 and said the knee here in Paris so it's moved from from outside uh, towards inside uh, it's interesting for me how this whole politics actually transformed through time and made this continuum the important thing with continuum is that there is no inside or outside it's all inside if we may call it like that and including in the Algerian revolution the, the Algerian revolution was on both sides of the Mediterranean and we we just commemorated the 60th anniversary of the October 17, 1961 lesson. What I found interesting in this question of continuum is to take it literally, like almost the way physicists uh, define it. Usually it means colonial continuity, like it's a very temporal thing. And we talk about how there was like a colonial era and then today is still like somehow this period. And so that's what usually is meant through this idea of colonial continuum, but what I find interesting is that a continuum is a four-dimensional surface, like it's, it's space and time together, and precisely how there is no inside and outside, like it's all, the empire makes it all inside, but then within this inside there can be like solidarities that are created between different spaces of uh, different times sometimes of that continuum. The bridge you just talked about between the Algerian revolution and the Bonlieu revolts in 2005 and even before that and after that 
is also in the book uh, complemented with third space time, which is the space time of the Kanak insurrection in Kanaki in New Caledonia in the 80s. And how, of course, from a strict geographical point of view, it seems like uh, we're dealing with, like, I mean, somehow Algeria and France are sort of facing, facing each other through the Mediterranean. And Kanaki seems like such a out of place, quite literally, uh, geography within this uh, continuum. But actually, it's that was precisely the goal of the book to show that it, it is somehow as connected to, to those two other uh, space lines through the empire itself, through the various regime of violence, of deportation to Kanaki, of people from the Paris Commune, of people from, from Algeria, from Kabylie in particular, but also through the very logics of settler colonialism and, and through even many of the Piennois, of the, of the former settlers of Algeria who moved to Kanaki uh, after Algerian independence. Not the little settlers, so to speak, like the most uh, like people who were part of the OAS, like the secret uh, army organization, terrorist French uh, settlers. But again, like how those links, this relation is created by the empire, but how those relations, once they're enacted, can be also recuperated by liberation movements and solidarities, exactly like you, what you just described. So uh, you mentioned that the Kanak reconciliation process is something which you finished your book with this Kanak reconciliation process. And you introduced this term of decolonialization, like, uh, you know, moving colonizator from the center. Can you explain a bit through this, uh, what does it exactly mean? Because this uh, process of reconciliation very often is, uh, especially in post-Yugoslav space after the war of the 90s, is something which is related uh, to the process which still keeps... uh, war in the, the space is not in something which brings people together but they are still in the conflict because this process of reconciliation so it's really like uh, it's, uh, I suppose this is quite something different so this is why I'm asking you that I wouldn't dare uh, taking the comparison with Yugoslavia yeah. which I, I know a bit, totally different definitely not yeah. enough to, to dive into it but the sort of the, the, the examples we have of, of states that declare themselves as being like engaged within processes of reconciliation, whether we think of South Africa or Australia to a certain degree or Canada, we can see how it is just pure illusion. Like just a state that sort of organizes its own remise and its own like spectacle of, of saying like okay now all is forgiven right right yeah okay and so the, the only moment I talk about reconciliation in this conclusion of this book is not between the colonizer and the colonized but among the colonized themselves repairing what colonialism has has destroyed and has injured and taking the examples of Kanaki in particular through an example that I, I cannot really talk about uh, verbally like that because it's uh, I don't know how to tell it without without having like some sort of ethnographic gaze at uh, what I'm describing. So in the book, I, I tried to wait words uh, very carefully to take the political power of, of the gesture I'm describing and not to ethnographize it. But yeah, basically it's the idea of what if we were to think of the concept of reparation and reconciliation without the colonizer on whom we cannot count anyway. I mean, again, like Macron just officially, quote-unquote, recognized the massacre of 60 years ago, but he didn't do it, actually. He really did not recognize it. He sort of put everything on the weight, on the shoulders of, of a guy who was already uh, tried for uh, complicity with uh, crime against humanity for his role in the, in the Holocaust. And so I don't think there is anything to expect from the colonial state. I think uh, we need to find other ways to repair what's, what's been destroyed. I'm quite interested in a, in a, in a book or that, and of course your research and the concept of state of emergency that you were dealing with and uh, to me that was it was very interesting how actually law enabled not only what they like to call derogation of human rights I mean this sounds very nice in respect to how these models of control actually functioned before but also today so can you tell us a bit about this how this concept actually developed right through different uh, ways and models and uh, how it is integrated in the society today like how can we see it in Paris like where and how what does it mean to live in a state of emergency and just another thing and we know that in law like state of emergency can be evoked for a very specific time and for, for a very short period of time but we know in many countries not only in 
France, in England, etc., etc. It was, was on for years and years, and then it's changed and then brought again. So what we see there is like how the colonialism continues through these models of control. So if you can say something about that. The book is built on a, on a complete contradiction, which is that the very title is State of Emergency. The law itself is studied as an object, like as a legal object, as a given space-time when it is applied. The whole argument of the book is that it doesn't matter. It's all, colonialism is a state of emergency. It doesn't matter whether there's a law that actually declares that somehow the military can do like 1% more of the 100% they already do. So I found this quote in like a very, I mean, it's funny how things work sometimes in research. Like I found this quote in like a very small box in like the seventh page of one issue of Humanité, like the communist newspaper from 1985, where Jean-Marie Chilaou, the leader of the Kanak insurrection, basically said like, vote the state of emergency, don't vote the state of emergency, I don't care. We've been living under it for hundreds of years anyway. And this was exactly my point, is like, I don't want to trivialize it, because especially now, because we, we had like, since 2015, we've been living under state of emergency, and even now, uh, for the last three years, we've been living under what has replaced state of emergency into common law, which is called the, the law reinforcing the interior security and the struggle against terrorism, uh, uh, which basically took about 80 to 90% of the state of emergency and made it common law. So I don't want to trivialize it, saying it's nothing, it doesn't matter, because people get their house searched in the middle of the night by like racist police uh, squads, fully armed, terrorizing families, Muslim families, and people are being um, uh, under home arrest as well, through it. I don't want to say it's nothing, but it is just a little snippet of what colonialism is about. Colonialism is continuous, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have this punctuality uh, that, as you say anyway, is, is extending, always extending. I mean, we're, we're under, it's, it's different, it's very different, and I'm really writing it very clearly that uh, the health state of emergency under which we still live right now is, is really different from the regular state of emergency. But what's interesting about it right now is like the government keeps extending it again. Like it's it's very it's very visible, and so so yeah. So this law that was created to crush the Algerian revolution, first of all, it's interesting to see that it was created in uh, March of 1955. So like five months after the Algerian revolution started, and what it allowed was already practiced in those five months and was already practiced in the 140 years before that anyway. So somehow it's just making it more official, it's making it more legal, but colonialism never needed to be legal. So I mean, it does in some cases, but we cannot see the law as like, uh, as like this sort of benevolent thing. Most of the time the law is made to enforce violence. The question about legality, illegality is a new one. So it's really like it's legality, legality of freedom and all kinds of struggles. How change is going to come from legal or illegal kind of a struggle, yeah. So thank you. This is also a good end of the story that uh, ideology is connected with architecture and that, that it's defined architecture and politics and the future structure maybe the starting point for the future is ideology, so <laughs> I would like just to mention the title of the movie of Marva Resnaku, A Phrase of Ideology, so we live in post-ideological time, maybe we should first think how to, to go out of this. So thank you so much for being here, and uh, yeah, I thank hope it wasn't much. so long. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.